I don't know if you've had this experience, but I think the most beautiful places I've ever been, I never intended to go to. I mean, there's all kinds of places that I have found myself in just trying to get home, sometimes because I was honestly lost, sometimes because I thought I was taking a shorter way, but inevitably we find ourselves in these gorgeous, beautiful places trying to go somewhere else, and yet we're in the midst of something that we never expected that just takes our gaze. I mean, that's everything from close by here, the Nantahala Valley. We stumbled across one time driving back from North Carolina to the Columbia River Gorge and, uh, and Multnomah Falls that I never even knew existed until I was just driving somewhere and passed them and just, just absolutely astounded or Pacific Coast Highway or even the mountains of central Italy. We were going to do earthquake relief work and just I was just just taken by the scenery there and just thinking, why don't people just flock to see this stuff and the mountains of Yunnan and China, all these places that you just sort of stumble on that are so beautiful and yet you never even intended to be there. Neat how that happens. It's really an opportunity to worship the Lord. Well, Paul is writing In 1 Corinthians 7, our passage this morning, you might say to a group of people who never intended to be where they are. They didn't intend to be there because honestly, the people he's talking to are people who are divorced, widowed, dissatisfied in their marriages, and sometimes even deserted. The divorced, the widowed, the dissatisfied, the the, the, the deserted people, people who didn't set out in life to find themselves in this place. They didn't begin their early life thinking this is the way it's all going to turn out. This is the way it's going to end up. And they found themselves somewhere along the way in a situation that they weren't aiming at. And yet what Paul's saying to them in 1 Corinthians 7 is this single message. You may not have intended to be where you are, but God can still use it. In fact, it could be one of the more beautiful times and seasons in your life of service to the Lord that you ever imagined. God can use it. In fact, we mentioned this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the sort of the the driving point of everything that he's been saying in the first part of this chapter comes to... uh, a culmination in verse 17 when he says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which the Lord has called him. This is the summation of everything that he has to say to a group of people that he's been addressing really going all the way back to verse 7 and coming all the way down through verse 16 that we've sort of summarized under the... the uh, Divorced, the dissatisfied, the deserted, the widows, people who weren't aiming to be where they are. Yet Paul says it might be one of the places that God has placed you for one of the most beautiful times of service that you ever imagined. I want to get us back into this text this morning and start by doing that just by reading the entire section for us again, you'll look at verse 7 with me where Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. 
but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so in such cases. The brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? And in verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned them. Basically telling them, you may not have intended to be where you are, but you need to realize God has a purpose. God has a plan. God has a ministry. God has an opportunity. And you need to embrace it. It could be one of the most beautiful that you've ever known life. You remember last week we started to look at these various groups that Paul is talking to here. And we started last week by just taking note of the divorced and the widowed. He mentions in verses 7 through 9, this is his first group. And he wants them to realize the unique opportunity that they have to serve the Lord in their unmarried state. And this is what he calls them, actually, the unmarried and the widows. Widows is fairly obvious. This would have been perhaps a young group of widows because Paul even mentions the possibility of them getting married like he does in 1 Timothy 5 when he says it's good for them to remarry and bear children and to keep a home and to do all those things. He's probably referring to people who found themselves widowed at an early age. But Paul talks also about another group, the unmarried. And he apparently doesn't have in mind what we think of when we might see that word. We tend to think maybe of a young single. He'll eventually address that group further down in verse 25. You have another major heading in this passage where he talks about the the betrothed or the King James New American Standards say the virgins now concerning the betrothed they are now concerning the virgins. They apparently had written him some questions specifically regarding what we would call young singles. But Paul's not addressing them yet. He won't do that until he gets down to verse 25. But here he uses the word unmarried, which in verse 11 very clearly refers to a divorced person. A divorced person. Really doesn't matter, I guess, no matter what category you fall in, young, single, divorced, widowed, because everything that Paul has to say here still applies to you. It's still, everything he says, the simple message that he has for them is it's good for you to remain single as I am. And it's good, as he says further down in the context, because it brings advantages for you to be able to serve God outside the home. It isn't necessarily or inherently more spiritual, but it has distinct advantages for the way that you might serve outside 
the home and your position of singleness, though it may not be one that you were aiming at when you started out as a young married person, or you started out even as a single and you hoped that by this time in your life you would have found someone. It may not have been what you were aiming at, but God has brought you to this place. And there could be a beautiful opportunity of service. That's Paul's message. But, but he says, if you can't exercise self-control in verse 9, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, there's nothing inherently more spiritual about being single, nothing inherently better about being single. And so if you have a desire to be married or if you have sexual desires you can't control, then you should marry, he says. In fact, there could be something less spiritual if you have that desire and you're you're always battling that desire and maybe even sometimes falling into temptation and then dealing with guilt and shame and all that stuff, it actually winds up being more of a hindrance to you serving the Lord than it would be an advantage, your singleness. And so Paul says, look, uh, some to some, there is given one gift, the gift of singleness. To some, there's given another gift. He says at the, at the end of verse 7, the gift of marriage. You just need to realize both are a gift. It isn't just married people, and it isn't just single people that the Lord desires to use. He can use anybody. Discern your gift and use it for the Lord. There were some, however, in this passage that we've already seen, who were trying to suggest that singleness is inherently more spiritual. In fact, remember their motto back in verse 1. Paul says, you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's good not to touch a woman. It's good not to have any kind of sexual contact with a woman. They They were using this motto to suggest that somehow it's inherently better to be Single, And you remember in the first four verses, they were actually using that in order to withhold from one another their marital responsibilities and marital affections. Well, as we come to verse 10 and Paul begins to address a, a different group, they were apparently using this motto for another purpose. You see in verses 10 through 14, not only does he address the divorced and the widowed, but also the dissatisfied. People who were in marriages that were unhappy. And they were beginning to try to convince themselves, maybe on the basis of this slogan, that maybe God would want them to serve or would have them serve better by divorcing their spouse. Some people do that. They're in a difficult marriage. They're in an unhappy marriage. They begin to try to convince themselves that God would actually want them to divorce their spouse. They come to the conclusion that somehow they could bring more glory to God by divorcing their spouse or somehow they could serve God better or serve others better or just be more spiritual by divorcing their spouse. They could get out of the unhappy situation they're in somehow that if they weren't in the constant pressure, uh, if there wasn't constantly so much strife and anxiety and going on in their life that they could focus more on the Lord, they could worship the Lord better. They go through all of these things in their mind and they try to convince themselves that this would be God's will for them. But no matter what your message that you're giving yourself, Paul makes it crystal clear in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, 
but the Lord. By the way, when he says that, he's not somehow suggesting that, uh, that, that what he says is not authoritative. He was an apostle. And everything he wrote in this book is the word of God. He's simply making reference to the fact that Jesus spoke directly to this issue. And what Jesus said is essentially summarized right here for us. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. That word separate, don't get caught up in it. It's, uh, it's uh, the word that they would have used in this day for divorce. There was no concept of legal separation. He's not forbidding legal separation here. He's simply forbidding divorce. You should not divorce your husband or your wife. That's his message. God doesn't permit it. It's not God's will. It's not God's design. No matter what you are teaching yourself. No matter what you're trying to convince yourself. God wants to use you. Even in the midst of your unhappy relationship. Even in the midst of your dissatisfied home. What Paul is saying to them, lead the life where God has placed you. Don't try to sinfully flee. Someone's going to say, well, doesn't the Bible allow for divorce in some cases? I mean, aren't there some situations that are just so bad that God would make a special allowance Aren't there some situations that are just so emotionally and physically and spiritually taxing? Aren't there some situations that are just so disruptive? Aren't there some special situations where God would allow for divorce? Well, yes, there is one that the Lord spoke of. He spoke of marriage a number of times, but in a few cases where Jesus spoke of marriage, he talked about the possibility of divorce, the only exception for divorce that he ever spoke of however, was in the case of adultery. He always affirmed that God hates divorce, that God ordained marriages for life, one man, one woman for life. But when it came to adultery, Jesus did indeed teach. There was a special exception. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I know we mentioned it briefly last time, but I want you to turn with me to Matthew 19 because I want to look at this in detail. It is an important issue one that affects nearly everyone in this room and all around us in society. It's important for us to get our minds around what our Lord teaches in this case. It's the clearest passage where Jesus addressed the issue, the issue of marriage and divorce. He was confronted by the Pharisees on this issue. They basically were quoting to him a line from one of their famous rabbis there in verse 3. Is it okay, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. I mean, that's essentially a quote from Hillel, one of their famous rabbis. They were hoping to catch Jesus in some sort of faux pas, some sort of misstep that would get him in trouble with the crowds. But Jesus penetrates through all their silly debate about their rabbis and all the discussion about their, the writings of, of their, their, their men. He cuts through all of that stuff and penetrates down to what the Bible says. And this is his answer in verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, the Pharisees realized that if they're going to debate Jesus, they're going to have to debate him on the scriptures then. And so they decide to throw one of the notoriously thorny verses at him, hoping that somehow it would expose some weakness in his teaching. And so they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So subtle when people are talking about scripture that they would twist it. This is what they're doing. Moses never commanded anyone to divorce anybody. They're they're referencing Deuteronomy 24, and Moses wasn't commanding divorce in that passage. He was regulating it. He was describing a situation that if indeed you did divorce, it ought to be done completely, and it ought to be done legally. And when someone divorces and then goes and marries another, you cannot then divorce a second time and go back to your first wife. That is what we call serial polygamy. That is having multiple wives, but having them successively. Some people might try to do that, try to have multiple wives by some sort of trick of of, uh, paperwork and legality. But the whole issue that Moses was trying to regulate is is the prevention of this serial polygamy, the constant marrying and divorcing and remarrying to several different people, always returning to former lovers, always coming back around and trying to to, uh, have your cake and eat it too. It's all polygamy. And Moses was writing to regulate against that. And so Jesus says to them in verse 8, because of the hardness of heart, your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, it was a concession, not a command. It was a concession. Moses allowed it. But that wasn't the way it was from the beginning. Say, from the beginning of what? Well, I mean, he, Jesus may be referring back to creation, as he said in verse 4. From the beginning, God designed marriage as a male and a female. He could be referring to the beginning then. He might also mean from the beginning of the law, from the beginning of Moses. God had not originally designed in the law a provision for divorce. Because that's essentially what he's saying here. That's not the way that God originally designed it in, in, in the garden. And it's not the way he originally designed it even in the law of Moses. In fact, if you go back and you read the law, places like Deut- uh, Leviticus 20, verse 10, other places, what you find is that God did provide a, or he did design a provision for the dissolution of marriages. Uh, For the dissolving of marriages, he did design a provision to protect innocent spouses in extreme situations, in cases of adultery or even serial adultery. God designed from the beginning, at least from the beginning of the law of Moses, decisive action against such adulterers. It was decisive action because God understood the destructive power of adultery in the marriage relationship. 
So God's original design in the law was death. Someone committed adultery, he took them out and stoned them. Leviticus 20.10, as I said, very clear on that. If there was impurity, if there was the introduction of sexual immorality, the marriage was ended. But it was ended by death. The problem was that almost as soon as Moses came down from the mountain with the law, all of Israel had plunged themselves into sexual immorality. Right there in Deuteronomy 32, we see it playing the harlot with a false god and sexual immorality with one another. And by implication, as you go out through the rest of the story of the wilderness wanderings, they continue to do so repeatedly throughout all of those wandering sexual immorality all the time taking place among the children of Israel. So a strict enforcement of the law would have literally decimated the population of Israel. It would have absolutely wiped them out if they had tried to stone every person guilty of immorality and sexual, uh, sexual immorality and adultery. And so apparently God made a provision. And Jesus acknowledges that God made a provision that whereas the marriage bond would normally be dissolved by means of death because of Israel's hardness of heart, they would have all died. So God made a provision for the dissolving of the marriage bond in order to preserve the purity of marriage within Israel without utterly obliterating the population. That's what Jesus means when he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But he goes on to clarify exactly what the intent of the law was. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You understood the original intent of the law. You understand the original penalty for adultery. That makes sense to you. If you go back and read the the law of Moses and read everything that God ordained and the way that God structured uh, laws regarding marriage, if you understand that God ordained protection against adulterous relationships through the death penalty, that makes sense to you. God mercifully allowed a different means, however, of dissolving that union through divorce instead of death because of the hardness of heart in Israel. But it doesn't mean that God ever endorsed ongoing and sustained adultery in relationships. Now, there are some people who are out there, who actually read Jesus' statement in Matthew 19. And they don't accept that he's actually making an allowance for divorce. They don't think he's making an exception. They would believe that there is never any grounds for divorce under any circumstances. And that if divorce ever happens, there's never any grounds for remarriage. Sometimes we conveniently refer to that as the no-no position. No divorce, no remarriage. And those who hold a no-no position would defend their position, sometimes by simply trying to redefine the terms. They would take, for example, the word porneia in Matthew 19, which is translated sexual immorality, and they would want to try to restrict that down to simply sexual immorality during a betrothal period. 
But then after the, the marriage is finalized, that therefore you no longer have that exception clause applying anymore. And they would want to say, well, it's sort of like, you know, Joseph and Mary in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph found out Mary was expecting, he was going to send her away. That was sort of a divorce action in those days. Well, the problem with that is that when you study the word porneia, it doesn't hold up in, in the New Testament and certainly outside the New Testament. When you study the word, there's no way to restrict it to simply sexual immorality within a betrothal period. It means all kinds of sexual immorality at all times. And so the word itself can't be redefined in order to escape this exception clause. So what you find is more often they would suggest that the exception clause is just misunderstood or misplaced. They would suggest that the exception clause Jesus gives here is not distinguishing between a good divorce and a bad divorce, but actually distinguishing between someone who commits adultery after marriage versus someone who already committed it. Now, I could have thrown a big graph up here and drawn all this out, but I'm really not that good with uh, computers, but I'll, you'll just have to follow. I know it's a lot. It's a little complicated, but they would basically say, you look at it this way. You get the gist of what Jesus is saying if you just take the exception clause out. And Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And then you add the exception clause back in, unless he's already committed adultery. Now, you have to forgive me a little bit if I think that's a stretch. I think it's safe to say most people think that's a stretch grammatically. It's tautologous or redundant, as they would say, to throw that in there. But more than that, it really begs the question, if that's God's will for marriage, why did he originally design a death penalty? If that's God's will for marriage and God originally designed the death penalty, why did he abolish it and what has he replaced it with and why? In other words, Jesus' whole purpose here is explaining the law of Moses and explaining the way that it developed and the way that it's used. And it was very clear in the law of Moses that God's will was that when there was adultery, there was a dissolving of the marriage bond if the innocent spouse so chose. It seems simplest and best then, based on the history, based on the context, based on the grammar, to understand Jesus' words as making an allowance for divorce for the innocent spouse if their husband or if their wife been unfaithful. Now, that doesn't mean that God mandates it. He can work through the pain and the brokenness, even of marital infidelity. He can work in grace to bring glory to himself. He does it all the time. The book of Hosea, as we mentioned last time, is a glowing example of a man who rose to the occasion and loved his unfaithful wife and was able to demonstrate to a watching world what the, what the, uh, uh, unfathomable love of God looks like in that situation, continually loving someone who deserved in every way to be put away. But this is God's allowance in certain cases. Now back over in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul isn't necessarily addressing any of that. That's all background. He isn't giving here a detailed treatise on divorce. He's simply reiterating God's design from the beginning in cases where there's not been adultery, where there's just dissatisfaction, there's just discontentment, there's just disappointment, unhappiness in marriage. 
He's simply saying that in that case, God's will is clear. Even if you're dissatisfied in marriage, you cannot divorce. You say, well, I think my husband or my wife, they've committed adultery in their heart. I mean, they looked at another woman. Let me ask you something. Are you telling me you haven't looked at another man? you telling me your wife looked at some other man and you've never looked at another woman in an ungodly and unholy way? You think that somehow you're innocent? Listen, if that was God's standard, if His standard was that we had to be completely pure in our hearts all the time, there would be no marriage ever, ever in the face of this earth that would not be justified in divorce. Don't use... Christ's own words is some justification for you to get out of some discontent and unhappy situation because you're looking for some way to find some exception clause. Paul says this is God's will. You do not divorce your husband. You do not divorce your spouse. You may think, you may try to convince yourself that somehow you be more fruitful, you be more useful, that God would somehow use you more. He said that's not the case. God's will is clear. Someone's going to say, but I'm married to an unbeliever. I mean, I could understand God wouldn't want me to leave another believer, someone who goes to church with me, someone who understands at least a little bit what I believe, someone who might pray uh, together with us or at least wouldn't fight against me serving in the church, giving to the church. But what if I'm married to an unbeliever? Maybe in that situation, God would be happier if I left or Maybe God will be happier if I divorce and found a Christian wife and a Christian husband and we could serve the Lord together. And maybe God would be happier if I divorced and didn't have this constant conflict over my faith and constant anxiety and and resistance to my efforts to serve God and to worship God. Maybe in that situation, it would be God's will. Well, for those people, Paul has the same message. You'll see in verse 12, to the rest, I say, I not the Lord. He's not, by the way, suggesting this isn't God's word. He's just saying Jesus didn't specifically address this particular situation. But I'm going to, he says. For the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce, she should not divorce him. Maybe a bit different circumstances, and some people may imagine that it merits different rules, but Paul says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you're dissatisfied in your marriage, whether you're dissatisfied with a believing spouse or whether you're dissatisfied with an unbelieving spouse, God has the same message for you. Serve Him right where you are. Serve Him right where you are. You're not allowed to sinfully flee the situation. God wants to use your struggle. God wants to use your heartache to do a work in your heart. More importantly, He may want to use you to do a work in your spouse's heart. This message in verse 13 Even if you're married to 
an unbeliever and you're unhappy and you're thinking about leaving, look what he says in verse 13. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What's his message here? The message is that God can use your situation. God can use your situation. You may imagine that God could use you better under different circumstances, but Paul is urging them to see that God can use you right where you are, even with an unbelieving spouse. You can say, you, you, might, you might be asking, how? I mean, how in the world could God use this situation? I mean, you don't understand the conflict. You don't understand the anxiety. You don't understand the pressure that I'm constantly under in this situation. How in the world could God do this? Paul says that if you have the right focus, in other words, if you're not always sitting around thinking about the discontentment you have with your present situation, if you get your heart and mind back focused on the cross and on your Savior, then your life is supposed to come become salt and light within your home. That's in essence what Peter says to wives in First. Peter chapter 3. You remember that? You can look over there with me. 1 Peter chapter 3. Remember, Peter writes this to to wives of husbands who are disobedient or we might even think unbelieving when it comes to the word of God. And this is what he says to them. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty with gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight, very precious. I love that phrase. Imperishable beauty. So you might be thinking, yeah, things were great when I was younger and I was able to, you know, dress, dress up and, 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 and impress and I was able to maybe be more attractive and now things have gone on a little bit more and the flash is gone and all these things and I know I'm not maybe what I used to be and maybe that's sort of at the heart of our problems and our marriage is falling apart. And Peter writes to them and says, listen, you can adorn yourself not with external stuff but with internal stuff which is imperishably beautiful. It gets, in fact, it gets more beautiful the longer you go as God's developing the character in your heart. You have the opportunity to grab the heart of your husband with the kind of life and the kind of conduct and the kind of spirit that will absolutely set you apart from everything else he sees in the world. And that is imperishable beauty, he says. That's what you need to do. You need to realize that you're in a situation and if you will give your heart to the Lord, if you'll wake up every morning and realize that your primary goal is not to to manipulate or control or to get something out of your husband, your primary goal is to offer yourself up to God for what is very precious in His sight. And every time you make a sacrifice and every time you serve, you realize that God is taking delight in what you're doing. 
take a woman, you take a man who's focused that way, even with an unbelieving spouse. And Peter is saying, in most cases, that's going to have a tremendous impact. Tremendous impact. What Paul's talking back, back over in 1 Corinthians 7. He's saying that if you're a husband, you lay down your life for your wife at every opportunity, whether it's meeting her material needs, her emotional needs, whatever needs she may have, you daily give your life to her. You're a sanctifying influence in her life. If you're a wife, respectful, lovingly submitting to your husband with a gentle and quiet spirit, you are adorning yourself. Something that will be so attractive that it may very well grip the heart of your husband. But whatever it is, whether you're a husband or your wife, the opportunity arises every day. Not so much by your words, not by having a Bible study with your spouse, not by preaching to them, but by your conduct, as Peter says, without a word. You may very well win your spouse. Paul's not implying, by the way, that there's any guarantee in that. In fact, if you're there in 1 Corinthians, you can go down to verse 16. What does he say? You don't know. You don't know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband. You don't know whether, O husband, whether you'll save your wife. He's not saying that if you do this, God is promising to save your spouse. That's not the point, really. The point is glorifying God. The point is serving God. There's no promise. There's no guarantee. God's not making a contract or a covenant with you that if you do this, he will do this. By the way, when he goes on to talk about children, he even mentions children here at the end of verse 17 and talks about how by staying in your marriage, your children are made holy. And some people want to sort of use this verse to to construct some idea of a contract, but it's the same thing. I mean, you have no guarantees. People actually use this verse, uh, just a little footnote for you. This is one of the key proof texts for people who believe in infant baptism. And they would want to use this verse because Paul mentions children at the end of the verse to say that somehow this is some establishment of some covenant that God would make with you as a Christian parent with your children. And somehow he's going to do something in their life. I mean, there's how they get baptism into a passage talking about divorce is really beyond me. But that's not the point of the passage, right? There isn't some guarantee. There isn't some contract here. It's just the natural impact of a believer whose heart and life are focused in the right direction. And if they're doing that, it doesn't matter if you're married to an unbeliever. And honestly, if you're married to a believer. You will have a sanctifying influence on those around you. You know, one of the most beautiful pictures I think we get in all of Scripture is the picture of the relationship of Timothy to his mother and his grandmother. You know, we're first introduced to Timothy in Acts 16. And what we're told about Timothy essentially is two things. First of all, his parents, one was a Jew, his mother was a Jew, his father was a Greek. And then the second thing we're told in Acts 16 is he wasn't circumcised. And so we conclude from that 
that although his mother was a Jew, his father didn't raise him under the principles of the word of God. Otherwise, he would have circumcised him because he would have been a proselyte to Judaism. And, and by virtue of the fact that we never hear again of his father. But when you come to 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is what you hear Paul writing. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure dwells in you as well. What a beautiful picture of a woman apparently married to an unbeliever. And yet in the midst of that situation, she gave her heart to the Lord. She gave her heart to the Lord. She became a sanctifying influence on her son. In fact, if you go on and read in Second uh, Timothy, later on chapter 3, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. In other words, you have this wonderful picture of this lady Eunice who even though she was married to an unbeliever, a man who didn't necessarily take the leadership to expose his son or to raise his son according to Scripture, and yet she was constantly bathing her son from childhood in the Scriptures. She might have been wondering all of her life how in the world God could use this situation and would God ever do anything. He's in this, her son is being raised in a home where he's got an unbeliever unbelieving father, probably a poor example at times, she may have wondered what God was going to do with this situation, never realizing that by serving the Lord where she was, God was going to use her to raise up a young man who would be the chief disciple of the Apostle Paul, one of his main companions till his dying day, one of the namesakes of two books of the Bible, and one of the examples for nearly every pastor who's ever lived. She had no idea what God was doing. No idea the way God was going to use her situation. This this is Paul's message. This is Paul's message. You need to realize God's placed you in this situation and he can use it for great things. People who don't believe that and they run, they flee, they divorce. You think that somehow they're going to try to get out of the situation. They throw themselves into the hands of the legal system where they have no control. They don't know what's going to happen with their children. In some cases, they may gain custody. But then they have to live with the reality ongoing that every few weeks or every now and then, they're having to send their children back into an unholy environment. An environment that now completely has thrown off the restraints and there's no more sanctifying influence and their kids are being exposed to things they probably would never been exposed to. Paul says, stay where you are. God will use it. You don't see how and you don't know how, but God will use it. Sanctify your home. God may use it possibly to save your husband. He may use it save your children. He'll sanctify your children though as long as you're there. 
Well, there's one more group that Paul addresses just quickly in verse 15. Not just the divorced, not just the widowed and the dissatisfied, but finally the deserted. The deserted. Paul says, the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you peace. So you've contented your heart. You're going to stay in the marriage. You're going to do what the Lord's called of you. But the reality is that the unbeliever doesn't always want to stay. I mean, we know that. Jesus taught it, right? Matthew chapter 10. I didn't come on to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He says in Matthew 10, 34, he says, uh, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I've come to not bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus is saying, look, sometimes he knows that in your allegiance to Christ, it will always be supreme, and that sometimes will bring conflict even into your own family. And that's just a reality that is out there. And so Paul is acknowledging that even when you submit yourself to the Lord's design, at times the unbelieving partner may still choose to separate from the marriage. They may still want to leave. And in that situation, you have no control over the outcome. Paul says the Christian should not even try to insist on their spouse staying if they're determined to go. Now, obviously... If you've done something that is sinful, something that has caused conflict because of some attitude that you've had, some words that you say, you need to do everything that you can to ask for forgiveness, to seek forgiveness. As Romans 12, 18 says, as much as is possible within you, be at peace with all men. You need to do that. So Paul's saying you need to to understand your role, be at peace with your spouse and certainly within marriage that stands but even but even if they decide to leave you're still called to peace you're still called to peace paul says in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved so what does that mean it means that you're not bound you're no longer under the law this is the same word that Paul uses over in Romans 7 where he talks about when a, wo- when a woman uh, loses her husband, she's released from the law. She's no longer bound and she can remarry. So this constitutes a second exception in God's design. In, in cases of adultery, as we've already outlined, there is an exception. God doesn't hold you responsible. You're free to remarry. And in cases of abandonment, in these situations... God says in his word, you're not guilty, you're not enslaved, you're not bound under the law anymore. You need to understand, you need to submit to what God's doing and be at peace. The message is the same, no matter what situation you're in. And for many of you and for many people out there, where they are today, not where they set out to be. They didn't enter into marriages thinking they'd be here. They didn't think it would end in divorce. They didn't think they would be a widow at this point in their life. No matter what it is, his message is the same. Whatever place God has put you, you can use it for God's glory.
Serve God. Singleness. Your marriage to an unbeliever. Your dissatisfied marriage to a believer. Even in times of desertion. God hasn't abandoned you. Even if others are rejecting you. It's a beautiful picture. And it may well lead. To one of the most beautiful seasons of your life. That you never saw coming. You'll use. Where God has you. His purposes. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with prayer. I want to just say to you. If you're here this morning. Everything we really say about marriage. Applies to all of life. You may be dealing with dissatisfaction. Not because of a marriage. But because of something else. And the message is the same. God can use your brokenness. God can use your disappointment. God can use all of that stuff. That's been brought on. In some cases by your own sin. And even by the disappointments of others, God can use it if you'll come to Him. If you'll submit to Him if you'll give your life to Him. Some of you are here this morning and you've never done that. But you've reached a point, you've reached the bottom. God is calling you. And God is saying that He wants to bring a beautiful season in your life. You'll trust Him. We'd love to show you how you can do that from the Word of God when we close in a word of prayer, I'd love for you to find me or find one of our elders after church, someone that you know here that knows Christ, anybody, and go and tell your story and let them tell you the story of Christ. Father, we're grateful this morning for your word, thankful that you have been so merciful to us, that you have taken our brokenness and used it. Lord, you've proven your power to do that. I pray that you would encourage hearts this morning, people who are here who are broken, who are deserted, who are dissatisfied. Lord, I pray that you would use them. Teach them how you can take even their situation and they can find a new purpose in it, a new season, beautiful season, because you haven't given up on them. I pray all these things in Christ's name.